All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Wayward Podcast. Where there is a word, there's a way. I'm Jonathan Robinson, and I am so glad that you could join me for another episode. Last week, I was dropping a bunch of episodes in a series focusing on how God is trustworthy and ways that we can learn to walk in trust. And while that series, as I had conceived it, is done for the moment, there was another little postscript conversation I wanted to add on. And that is how this conversation on trust might take on a sharper shape when the conversation becomes about following Jesus. And Bible story-wise, there is a huge time jump and a leap of context when we go from the story of Moses and the Israelites learning to trust God in the wilderness to following Jesus around Galilee. So while there's going to be a lot of important material left out of this conversation, I hope to rectify that later through another series that I'm trying to gear up for. But even though there is this big time jump and a big context leap, there are enough themes and similarities going on in this text that we'll be looking at today to see that the two stories are very connected and intend to shape the reader into a person of faith whose life is powerfully directed by that faith. So the text that we are going to jump into today is in Matthew chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, that's where we'll be, Matthew chapter 17, and we'll be starting with verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, for uh, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So the story comes after Peter has recently publicly confessed who he thinks Jesus really is, and that is the Messiah, God's chosen servant to save his people. And after this event, 
Jesus's ministry begins to escalate in a variety of ways. One of those ways is here, where we see Jesus take Peter, James, and John up to a mountain. In Luke's version of the story, they're going up to the mountain to pray. And while up there, Jesus experiences what has been called a transfiguration. His face shines like the sun. His clothes become a dazzling white. It's kind of like the revelation of the resurrected and exalted Jesus that we see in Revelation 1, 12 through 15. And not only is Jesus here transfigured, he's also joined by other figures from what we all call salvation story past, Moses and Elijah. And at this, Peter begins talking about putting up tents for these figures to dwell in. Now, was Peter just chatting nervously? Or was Peter kind of reverting to this old school idea of housing the divine by setting up a tabernacle or a shrine? Uh, maybe a little bit of both, possibly, but the idea is halted when they are covered by bright clouds and they hear a voice thundering, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So, whatever Peter had in mind, it was detracting from what God was doing through this revelation of Jesus. But what exactly is being revealed here? There's likely uh, several possibilities, but I'm going to name four meanings I think can be found in this moment. The first moment, or the first meaning, is that this moment reveals that Jesus is gloriously more than just a man. In this transfiguration moment, the veil between earth and the heavens is being made translucent and transparent enough for the disciples to get a quick glimpse of Jesus's glorious, otherworldly, celestial form or nature. It's a brief image of Jesus's godness coexisting within his human form. A second possible meaning is this moment corroborates Peter's recent confession of Jesus. As I said, uh, Peter has recently confessed Jesus as the Messiah, and now the Father shows Peter the power residing behind that statement, with James and John there to verify it later. So this corroboration and verification are intended to expand their capacity for knowing Jesus and strengthening their devotion to Jesus because they are able to see Jesus as he really is. A third possible meaning is that this moment links Jesus to the story of God's salvation past, while promoting Jesus's higher status in that story. The appearances of Moses and Elijah help make that link, and their roles in the story of God's salvation past are, are worth noting. Um, 
worth noting, uh, Moses was the one who gave the people of Israel her holy purpose, while Elijah was the one who attempted to reform the people when they were in danger of walking away from and losing that holy purpose. And now here they are in sort of a passing of the torch capacity, attending to Jesus, who will finally restore Israel's purpose. So put another way, while Moses was the founder of the faith and Elijah was the reformer of the faith, Jesus will be the perfecter of the faith. And a fourth possible meaning is that this moment distinguishes Jesus as the author of the transforming reality God is ushering in. When the voice of the Father in the cloud tells the disciples that this is my Son, the Beloved, listen to Him, He is framing the authoritative voice from whom redemptive reality shall now unfold and flow. God is designating Jesus as the author of the way of life that will transform those who live it out. So now with this transfiguration story concluded, Jesus collects his disciples, and they start making their way down the mountain, which brings us to the second story. And that will begin in verses 14, and I'll read to 20. Matthew 17, verses 4 through 20. When they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt, knelt before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was cured instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming down from the mountain, and when they return to the rest of the disciples, there is this man there who asks Jesus to have mercy on his son by healing him. And as we saw, the boy is an epileptic, uh, he's suffering from seizures, and sometimes during those seizures, he is thrown into the fire or into the water. And apparently, this father had already approached Jesus' disciples, asking them to cure him. Now let's just think about that for a second. This father had heard of Jesus' great power, he had brought his son to Jesus, but when Jesus wasn't there, this man expected Jesus' followers to be able to do what Jesus did. And Jesus 
seem to have this expectation as well. Because once the father tells Jesus his disciples couldn't cure the boy, Jesus actually expresses frustrated disappointment. It's like Jesus is saying, after everything you've seen me do, you couldn't handle this. Now, if we pause a moment, there is a question here that we can ask ourselves. What does that expectation say about Christian discipleship? What does that expectation say about following Jesus? At the very least, if we claim to be Jesus' followers, Jesus expects our lives to be reflections of his. And if we look back through the Gospel of Matthew, at the life Jesus has been living and the things that Jesus has been doing, we will see an extraordinary amount of patience, an extraordinary amount of compassion, of healing, conversation, education, of setting daily examples that are both countercultural and paint a picture of what the kingdom of God can look like. Jesus set a very high bar. And because this world and its definitions of success often operate on a very low bar, it's important for us to understand that if we are wanting to be followers of Jesus, then Jesus expects us to strive for that high kingdom standard that he himself set. So in verse 18, Jesus rebukes the demon, the demon leaves, and the boy is cured. And then the disciples come to Jesus later and they ask, why could, not, why, why could we not cast it out? It's nice to see these, that their failure hasn't made them quit and that they still feel safe coming to Jesus for understanding. And Jesus' response in verse 20 is, it's both an explanation and it's education. He, he says to them, because of your little faith. This phrase, little faith, it does not refer so much to the size of faith or amount of faith, but rather to the internal resolve of that faith. It describes a form of belief that is so unconfident that that despite just you know saying eh, I believe you know despite that little intellectual assent it still is a form of belief that shrinks away from Christ-like behavior it's like you know sometimes we say we believe but not enough to conform our behavior to that of Jesus. But thankfully, Jesus authors a way to move beyond mere I believe statements towards behavior that actually imitates Jesus. So let me read verse 20 once again uh, for the full statement that Jesus uh, gives them. He says, because of your little faith, and then he explains, For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, 
you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, by using this image of a mustard seed to visualize faith, Jesus clarifies the point that it's not the size of faith that matters. It's what we are prepared to do with it. If our faith is prepared and resolved to obediently imitate Jesus' behavior, there we will find the boldness to face what scares us or what stands in the way of our obedience to Jesus. And Jesus illustrates this, this scary looming object with, with um, this idea of this mountain. Now, even though Jesus is referencing a literal mountain, he's not talking about moving literal mountains. The mountain is an illustration of the scary looming thing that stands in our way, just as the mustard seed is an illustration of how just a small amount of faith that is resolved to glorify Christ is powerfully capable of doing great things for God. Steps of faith are often really just steps of obedience. And steps of obedience are really just choices to glorify God, even when it's scary. But as we, as we make those choices and as we take those steps of obedience, our faith melts the scary mountains looming in our minds. I think this is what Jesus had in mind when he said, Nothing will be impossible for you. Steps of faithful obedience diminish the mountains in our minds. When we lean into the power of God, what is possible with God becomes probable for us. So having explored these two stories... Now let's turn to just, you know, what wisdom is there within these stories? What wisdom is there that shapes a path for us to follow? A way of faithfulness or a way of faithing forward, if you will. So I have a number of statements here that I just like want to offer to you Um for your encouragement about like uh, six possibilities or six possible ideas that can help frame or form a way, a faithful way forward for us. So the first one is, and I think this is probably, you know, the, probably the most important because this is where we put our first, our best foot forward when it comes to establishing God's gift of faith within us. So first, focus your heart, mind, emotions, choices, and actions on the person of Jesus. Do this in prayer. Do this when singing praises. 
Do this in your Bible reading. Do this in your anxious moments of hurry and worry. Prayerfully pondering King Jesus is how we are prepared to pursue the calling of King Jesus. As it says in Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, is how we learn to move forward in faith. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, all of us are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The more we delight ourselves in Jesus, the more we are formed to reflect the person of Jesus. So if you desire to live a life of faith, Learn to spend literal time with Jesus. A second possible point is accept the high kingdom standard Jesus expects of his followers. When we look at the things that Jesus said and did, we will see an extraordinary amount of patience, compassion, healing, conversation, education, a daily example of being both countercultural and reflective of what God's kingdom can look like. It's a high standard and it's a hard standard, much like a mountain. But this kingdom standard is what our bodies and our behavior is made for. Jesus forms faith in us so we can live out those kingdom standards. A third possible point is that whatever the size of your faith, resolve to greatly glorify God with it. Our faith is formed by the person of Jesus so that our faith will make much of Jesus. Now we need to be careful here with what we mean by great because in this world, great can actually mean a lot of worldly things. The world's idea of great can get us dreaming about huge church buildings, world-renowned uh, preachers, and, and you know the story. But Jesus' idea of great are those who love and serve boldly. So whatever the size of your faith is, use it to love and serve boldly. And that's how we make much of Jesus to the local neighborhoods and cities around us. A fourth possible point is let your faith turn you to face your mountain. When Jesus said that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move. You can't say it to the mountain if you're not facing the mountain or if you're not seeing the mountain. I sometimes wonder if a reason why many Christians struggle to live in faith is because they are closing their eyes to the mountains, or are ignoring them, or acting like the mountains don't exist. Or even worse, they learn to normalize the mountains. Say, oh yeah, such and such. That's Yeah, that's a problem. It is what it is. Now, I'm not making light of the mountains that we face in life. 
But I wonder if normalizing the mountains neuters our faith's ability to deal with the mountains. But again, if we are resolved to learn from Jesus, our Lord tells us that faith enables us to face our mountains, confront our fears, and tell our mountains and fears what to do. Faith gives us the final word over our fears. A fifth possible point is, let your faith dissolve your mountain one step at a time. Have you ever hiked a mountain and it looked in at the very beginning it looks so tall and imposing and you're like oh how am i going to do this or am i able to do this but then at the end when you are on top of the mountain and you look back you think to yourself wow we did it it looks so different from up here when your faith is resolved to glorify God, you practice that faith not in one big leap, but by just taking it one step at a time. And as we learn to take it just one obedient step at a time, those mountains gradually dissolve or look nothing like what scared us before. When our faith is resolved, the mountains dissolve. A possible sixth point. Rejoice in the expansion of your confidence in Christ. When Jesus says that you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you, that's the realization that obedient faith has changed us. What's changed? What has changed is that our belief is no longer just an intellectual I believe statement. There is a genuine confidence there that Christ is at work in me, that Christ has empowered me to move forward into this mountain, and that Christ will be glorified in this journey. Now, in verse 20, when Jesus said that you will say to this mountain, move from here, and it will, and it will move, can you imagine Peter, James, and John looking back at this mountain they had just come down? and remembering what had just occurred up on that mountain? They likely quietly remembered how they had seen Jesus' glorious heavenly form revealed, and how a voice thundered from a bright cloud, Listen to him. And now standing there, they're listening to Jesus' words, say to this mountain, move from here and it will and it will move and nothing will be possible for you. Those kinds of ponderings are how confidence in Christ is stirred up. 
and seeing the mercy and healing that Jesus brings is what develops our desire to live up to Jesus' kingdom standards. And seeing those same needs present in our neighborhoods and cities is what compels us to enact Christ's compassion on those needs. Yes, those needs will impose challenges. But remember, along with Peter, James, and John, that it's upon those mountains we meet God. So by making the image of our glorious Jesus central to our faith, whatever size our faith may be, let us confidently resolve to move forward into the mountains in our lives and watch how with every obedient step we take, the mountains are conquered, our confidence in Christ increases, and our lives grow to look like Jesus. I want to thank you for joining me today on this episode of the Wayward Podcast. And I just want to remind you that where there is Jesus, there is a way through the mountains. Goodbye.